This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 10th of February. And on the programme today, we focused on cheating and whether or not ChatGPT makes it easier. Soraya Beheshti from Crimson Education says it's even affecting the university admissions process. While Dr Zenith Reza Khan from the University of Wollongong here in Dubai suggested 70 to 80% of pupils cheat. And that kicked off a fascinating discussion. Plus, in April, our children will only be in school for 11 days because of a combination of the school's holidays and the Eid break. But should we worry about them keeping up with the curriculum? We found out with Tabitha Barder from schoolscompared.com. And ahead of International Day of Women and Girls in Science, we asked science teacher Rachel Parkinson from the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, whether she notices any differences between boys and girls in her classes. Plus, we got inspired by the studies of Emirati pupil Galia Alhendi. She's one of the first UAE women to get into Stanford University. She also won a scholarship to study engineering physics and told us all about her road to success. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Right. Welcome back to the agenda. Welcome back specifically to Eye on Education. It is our chance to take a close look at all the top education, the top learning stories hitting the headlines. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in the studio by Andrew Hosey, who, amongst his many skills, uh, is is very good at finding education stories. Hello. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I I don't feel that I've been... um doing quite as much research into education stories as normal. This week has been a big week for news. It we really have has. been covering the stories, the the earthquakes in, in Turkey and Syria very, very closely indeed. It very much is, I think it's one of the biggest stories for our region for about, uh, I mean, for decades, I would suggest. Uh, and you can tell that the UAE government sees it in the same way as well. The sheer amount of effort that is being put into sending re- relief supplies over there. Really staggering. It's been a terrific response from yeah. the country. Uh, and the community. And the community yeah. as well, yes. Amazing um, to see the community rallying. What's wonderful is uh, you, know, you can see the, the real value of social media at times like these. Uh, yes. you know, Facebook pages, people messaging each other, saying how can we help, how, how can, can we, we get involved, and people telling people how they can get involved, all yeah. just done uh, through community groups. It's, it's fantastic. We have a really clear list of the ways that you can get involved on the ARN News Centre website. So worth taking a look like, look at that. You know, if you're hearing these awful headlines and, and you're instinctively wanting to react, the, the best way to, to find out, the, the legal way of doing that, uh, because you do have to be careful about, about charity drives in the UAE. So the legal way to go about that, do check out the ARN News Centre website. Now, let's take a look at these education headlines because apparently some schools in the UAE are considering shortening their hours uh, because they say children seem to be showing signs of burnout. Now this really, my children aren't showing signs of, bu- signs of burnout, but their day is stretching. You know, they have early classes before, you know, they have sports before school and after school now. Yes. And so they are, you know, busy for, for a good eight to ten hours and maybe that is too much for an under 10 year old i mean i think it, it is a long day um i was actually discussing this with my mother ah. who used to be in education um and we were actually talking about the school hour here and how it differs from the school hour that i grew up with in scotland and part of the thing that we kind of worked out was a lot might have to do with the weather of yes. course, because uh, in Scotland in winter, going to school, you couldn't really go to school before 9am because it's it was dark. dark and you couldn't really carry on after 3pm because it was dark because it was dark <laughs> and also freezing. Yes. Uh, so uh, that was a big contributing factor, I think, uh, to do with the nine to three oh, school. Oh, yes. Whereas here, it's much more seven till one. Seven to one Sometimes. with extracurricular activities going on after. 
afterwards. Yeah, so nice. It's I mean, my kids are, are in a British curriculum school that starts a bit later. So mine are eight thirty till three thirty, uh, and then then you sort of pad it out before and after. But there is this fascinating article in the National. It quotes uh, Mary Cascaden. Now she's a professor of psychiatry and human behaviour at Brown University in the United States, and she said that people often believed more time in the classroom was better, but that the research didn't support that. She said in the US, a state will make a law that we need the kids in the classroom for a certain number of hours a year and they'll lengthen the day to accommodate that. But it's not actually producing gains in learning. It's not actually what pupils, bodies and brains are built to do. I mean, that to me seems obvious. Yeah, Uh, uh, so much of scientific (laughs) research is. You know, (laughs) attention spans, uh, particularly in a learning environment, you can't expect children to be glued to a desk uh, for hours at a time. Even adults. Indeed. I wonder whether our focus actually decreases as we get older. I feel like it does. I'm sure it does, actually. What are we talking about again? I can't remember. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at the comparisons abroad. What do they do in Finland? Right, so Finland, this they are widely regarded as a standard bearer for education uh, standards. People start the day at 9am and finish at 2.45pm. Again, that might be due to weather in the winter uh, putting the school day at less than six hours. I studied in Finland, you know. Not at school. There's a song about that. I went to university in Finland for a term. Yeah, and it was very cold. Flexible, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> cold. I'm um, obsessed with it being cold yes, and dark today. Actually, funnily enough, it was when I arrived, it was basically whiteout conditions. Then one day it was spring, next day it was summer. That was it. That's it. I, I did not know that about the Finnish weather. There and we then go. It, it was the land of the never setting sun by the time I left. Anyway, uh, the UK also has an average school day of between five and six hours. The US clocks in at 6.64 hours. It's a different situation in South Korea with people's often expected to be learning for 12 to 16 hours with after-school academies in place and dinners served at school. So basically, I think this is all to do with the work culture as well there, isn't it? Yeah, that, uh, that's Basically, bonkers. this includes childcare in the school day. That is convenient. I, yeah. would, I would say that is convenient. Uh, pupils in China are typically in the classroom from 8 till 5. School day in the Philippines, similar. They're around about nine hours per day there. Okay, cheating. This is a subject we're going to be, it's going to be a key focus for us on the program today. And it all stems from something that a guest on the Business Breakfast said on Monday. I was listening to the program, as is my want when I'm getting ready for work. And they were doing an interview about chat GPT with Dr. Zenith Reza Khan. Now, she's Program Director of Pathway Programs uh, here at UOWD College. Now, the focus was on whether chat GPT was helping people cheat. And, and obviously it is. Uh, but I was really astonished when she said this. The percentage hasn't really changed much over the decades that we've done the research. It's about 70 to 80 percent. This is self-reported cases. That means if you do a survey or if you're doing focus group where students are by themselves reporting that, yes, I either I have cheated or I have seen somebody else cheat. So that's the range that we are looking at usually 70 to 80. 70 to 80 percent of people cheat. And the fact that 70 to 80 percent of people admit Admit it. it. Admit it. It is actually an incredible statistic, isn't it? It just completely blew my mind. Literally, I stopped in the bathroom getting ready. I stopped in the bathroom and I, well, there wasn't anyone I could tell because no one else was there. <laughs> but I was a bit like, 70 to eight. Like, literally, I was saying to my hand, 70 to eight. Like, oh, astonishing. Okay, so um, we are asking the audience. We're asking you today. Did you cheat? You don't have to say your name, obviously. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want to ruin your career. But get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Did you do it? Did you cheat? I genuinely, I promise, right. never did. I've never cheated. Not even in a classroom, no, for example. No, I've literally never, well, no, 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 I've never, I've never cheated. I, I'd like it, I, I'm not necessarily a good person, but I have never cheated. And the only thing I've ever stolen is a bath pearl from a bathroom shop when I was about six. Do you remember what they, they were? It's, that's a little... Like, Those little Little tiny things, balls right. that you don't okay. get anymore. That have. Okay, so I haven't cheated and I haven't stolen. It's not bad, hey? <laughs> okay, that's um, very good. I'm not going to turn to you and ask yeah. you, did you ever cheat? 
Um, I in in maths class, um, not in an exam scenario, uh, but just because it got to a stage of maths where I just could not get my head around algebra. Fair enough. I, I could manage up to a certain stage, and then it just became utter nonsense to me. Yeah, and I realised I it was just not going in. So I kind of ended up sneaking looks at the person that's sitting next to me. But that's it, fine. It wasn't in an exam setting. I have to admit that I don't remember anything about my education under the age of 10. So it's possible I did it before 10. I will I admit mean, to plagiarism at oh, university. Oh. Uh, essays <gasps> I would lift paragraphs would out of um, <gasps> textbooks. So you're one of the 80%. And then accidentally cite... The you know when you had to write down citations of where you found yes. your information, I'd accidentally cite the wrong page to. Well, what to, to fudge it? That's extraordinary. Okay, but well, I uh, wouldn't say that. I mean, I don't think you're atypical. No, is that the right way, way to say it? You, in fact, you are typical, as it appears. The thing was, tools then did not exist to find out that kind of thing. Really now, so much. yeah, now you yeah. get done. Now you get done. Okay, uh, we're going to. We have two more stories that we haven't got okay. to yet, which I carefully wrote out, uh, but we might just leave for now. Uh, it's uh, one of them was about university careers. Um, there's a UK survey that suggests that students should be given more details about how the courses that they study after leaving school might affect their employment prospects. There's a suggestion that you know sometimes it takes graduates until the age of thirty to actually see the long-term effects of their employment prospects. You know, an effect on their salary. So there's a big question as to whether or not people. Everyone should be going to university. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. There are exciting developments going on in artificial intelligence, but of course they are causing concern among teachers because they make it so much easier to cheat. The US company OpenAI introduced its chatbot, ChatGPT, to the public in November. More than a million people signed up within a month, uh, including me and Andrew uh, and my husband. If you haven't tried it yet, it really is extraordinarily powerful. It can code, it can write essays, it can pass exams, uh, including most recently law exams in four courses at the University of Minnesota and another exam at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Slightly staggering. Now, earlier this week, the Business Breakfast spoke to University Professor Dr. Zena Reza Khan. She's a program director of Pathway Programs at the University of Wollongong in Dubai. Now, the focus was whether ChatGPT is helping people to cheat, but I was astonished when she said this. The percentage hasn't really changed much over the decades that we've done the research. It's about 70 to 80%. This is self-reported cases. That means if you do a survey or if you're doing focus group where students are by themselves reporting that, yes, I either I have cheated or I have seen somebody else cheat. So that's the range that we are looking at, usually 70 to 80. 70 to 80 percent. That's not 17. That's 70 to 80 percent. And this is people admitting it. Can you imagine how many it would be if they didn't admit it? So needless to say, that means we're putting the focus on cheating on the program today. And I want to hear from you. And you can do it anonymously if you want. Uh, but have you ever cheated? That's the question. Come clean if you have. I'd be interested to know why. Uh, and if you haven't, you know, I salute you. Uh, join us on the line. Uh, tell us. 4001. Or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Now, joining us on the line to talk about cheating is Soraya Behisti. Now, she's the Regional Director of Crimson Education, which is an organisation that counsels students with their university admissions process, which I remember even 25 years ago being pretty complicated. So I've no doubt that Crimson help people on their path to success. Soraya, thanks for joining us on the line. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about this interesting topic. My goodness me, it is. And it is uh, it's sort of groundbreaking because it seems to be advancing and changing almost every week. We are talking mm-hmm. about uh, chat GPT. Now, the focus so far, uh, at least on the business breakfast, has been exams. But of course, these new systems could impact every part of the education yeah. process, including, do you think, university admissions? University admissions, but also, I mean, if we go beyond the admissions, these kids that get in are undoubtedly going to be taught how to use AI. It's just going to be part of their workforce. But for sure, I mean, off the top of my head, it will change the dynamics around essays. Certainly universities may shift more to interviews. That's a speculation. 
it does have the potential to assist students in writing essays, but it's important that, you know, something like ChatGPT shouldn't be used as a substitute for a student's own writing and critical thinking skills. In fact, the Harvard newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, wrote that um, ChatGPT mimics the virtues of human critical thinking, discourse and engagement inherent to the intellectual pursuit of writing. But, um, you know, our take is that the important aspect of a college essay is the personal details that are added in the flair the personality and this is what really helps an admissions officer determine the fit and at even the most elite universities they're looking for fit not just brilliance you know uh, yeah it's not enough to have a great essay well I actually I remember I tried to get into Cambridge University and I did perfectly well on the exams and everything but what was interesting and I remember it now they asked me a question at the uh, at the interview and I said well I know X college I think it was Queen's College is particularly good and I can't remember what it was particularly good for at the time but they disagreed with me. And I sort of, you know, he was a professor. And, and so I didn't argue against him, even though I knew he was wrong. And I think that's why I didn't get in, because they wanted people who had independent thought, who were able and confident enough to argue even with college professors. So I can see how important the interview can be. But tell me a bit more about this college essay. Is that what we used to call the sort of personal statement when I used yes. to apply? Yeah, in the UK, you would reply with a personal statement, which is one essay that you send to all five universities. There are changes happening to that. Um, in the US, you have something equivalent to that, which is like the Common App essay that goes to everyone. You can apply to, you know, 20 universities if you want to. But each university also has their own supplemental essays between like two to 10. And these can be short essays, long essays. Um, and they're really university specific. And Whereas in the UK, you're taught to write in a more detached writing style or like neutral objective. And um, in the US, they very much want to see like a lot of personal pronouns, personal stories, humor, personality. It's really different. And that's that's a little bit more difficult for chat GPT to replicate. And um, also colleges may start to use detection tools to figure out what was written by AI. So that's um, that's also an interesting, you know, sort of angle. But what we what we feel is that many are approaching ChatGPT perhaps the same way society approached any new invention. So there's a little bit of trepidation, fear, amazement. Um, you can think of the calculator when it was invented. Um, people perhaps talked about it as the death of math. You know, sort of like rotting the human ability to actually um, to actually calculate. But what we know now is that you, knowing how to wield a calculator. Is, is its own skill and is incredibly important for a mathematician. It's not that it takes away the work of that mind. And so while bots can aggregate knowledge, it can't really synthesize a unique theory or idea at the moment. So do you think it would be okay, you know, if you've got pupils and parents listening now, do you think it would be okay for them to use ChatGPT as a preliminary sort of uh, essay writer and then to sort of, you know, uh, gussy it up effectively? Um, I would advise students to really look at the ethical uh, policies on plagiarism of the places they're looking for. That's going to be super important. And there are ways to detect that. Um, I think what could be useful is thinking about it in terms of generating ideas or prompts, um, you know, just like initial starting point. I wouldn't use it to write the essay, but just to help get over writer's block. Um, it can be it can be interesting. So, yeah, I mean. We actually have a student who started with Crimson, um, then got into Oxford, did a computer science and philosophy bachelor's, then went to Cambridge and did um, MPhil in computer science and then PhD in philosophy of machine learning. He's actually working at ChatGBT now, which is really, really fun for us. Um, That's and, you know, amazing. More, well, you, so, you've yeah, got, so you've got the inside really track. How does, uh, you know, how does he feel about being, you know, working at, on cutting edge technology that everyone is talking about right now? Well, he was previously at DeepMind. And as a philosopher, he's really studied a lot about the kind of ethics and philosophy of AI and, and feels very passionately about that. And that's fun for us to see because university isn't inherent, like, you know, what we do helping students with tutoring universities is to ultimately help them build these really meaningful careers that feel great to them. And so when we get to see students on the other side of that, that's really fun. I also heard about, um, you know, recently for the first time ever, ChatGPT was used by a judge 
um, in a court decision. Um, and I think that that's perhaps like a similar similar analogy to how admissions officers might might use something like ChatGPT. So um, the judge didn't make their decision based on the findings of ChatGPT, but it just kind of he he used them to um, sort of aggregate information um, and enhance his legal decision. So wow. that was quite interesting. That is very interesting. I mean, we're certainly using it for our research here at Dubai Eye. It, it's not very good at sort of writing scripts, for example. That's a little bit too specific for it. But uh, as far as research is concerned, it, it really is extraordinary. Yeah. I, I fear it's going to get rid of a lot of people's uh, or a lot of junior jobs, at least. And that, But then, of course, you uh-huh. need the junior jobs to become a senior. Uh, so goodness knows how it's going to work out. Absolutely fascinating to hear about the impact it could have on college admissions. Saraya Beheshti, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you on the radio. Regional Director there of Crimson Education. Uh, they're, of course, an organisation that helps students with their university admissions programme. This is Eye on Education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people we are talking about cheating on the programme today so many people getting in touch uh, to say whether or not they have cheated Uh, really interesting uh, comments coming through Uh, let's see here Anil says I have never cheated but at uni on occasion the odd friend would copy his homework from me. On one occasion, the lecturer gave me zero while the person who copied me got 100%. Being a good friend, we both went up to the lecturer and he corrected our respective marks. Uh, interesting stuff there. Uh, we, have, we have heard statistics that suggest between 70 and 80% cheat. Uh, absolutely extraordinary numbers. One person here says, I never cheated, but I have assisted many to cheat from my paper. Many people wanted to sit around me to see my answer sheet. Interesting stuff there. Uh, Let's have a look here. Faraz Faraz says, I never cheat. I even had myself transferred out of a school when I was in grade six because I felt that the invigilation staff during the final exams were turning a blind eye to those who cheated. Here I was working my bottom off to get great grades and top the class while in the exam hall the students were being allowed to run through their textbooks to get the answers. It was absolutely unfair. In my view, the same applies to to the pub quizzes I go to each week. If you can't answer the questions without sneakily Googling the answers, then maybe quizzes aren't from you. That is a very fair point for us. Thank you very much for getting in touch. Not that many people getting in touch to say that they have cheated. Uh, Let's hear a few more of those. If 70 to 80% of people are doing it, there must be more of you out there. I I do promise to keep it anonymous if you want to. Lots of other people still playing with chat GPT. Ethel says, I used it to write a children book that I've always wanted to write. Of course, it still requires me to flesh it out and expand, but it was fascinating. It did five chapters. Karem says, I've tried playing chess against ChatGPT. Uh, and uh, he goes on to say, it claimed to know how to play, but said it would play via messaging, e.g. pawn to e4, etc. However, it couldn't play. It tried to make illegal moves. So there you go, ChatGPT not completely mastering the universe so far. Uh, But it it still is pretty impressive, as described by Dr. Zenith Reza Khan. Now, she's Programme Director of Pathway Programmes at the University of Wollongong here in Dubai. She's actually been researching the cheating being done by university students. And she told The Business Breakfast the type of cheating that students are doing, according to her study. I've been doing research on this topic for a while now in the region. And um, anybody who says cheating is not happening in their classrooms, um, that's a pipe dream. That doesn't happen. There is always some form of cheating happening. Not all of it is intentional. Students aren't always doing it because they want to be malicious. Uh, a lot of the times they just don't have the right tools. They've not been taught the right type of writing skills that are needed, um, the right type of acknowledgments as expected. In the, especially during the pandemic, what we did see mushroom was SMLs. Um, which is basically companies that are writing assignments and reports for students. 
Yeah, she said that never mind chat GPT, hiring companies to do your essay work for you is big business. Even businesses like sites that are offering answers to essays and questions, they became multi-billion dollar um, industries over the pandemic. And um, this is something that everybody's kind of looking at. Uh, We've had quite a few countries actually banning such services, saying they're unethical and illegal now um, in countries like UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, parts of USA. And the reason being... Uh, contract cheating is a problem. It's not not just an academic problem because you have a third party who is outside the jurisdiction of a university that actually is getting involved. So how do you kind of man or monitor or manage that aspect? Okay, so how do you find a solution to the problem? She says it's not easy. It's not something that you can just fix. You can't put a Band-Aid on it. Um, It's something that you have to really work hard at. The things that we do look at that works is not just at grassroots levels, just talking to students, because it's not just a student problem. Um, If I, as a teacher, am constantly repeating assignments, uh, my students are going to pick up on that and they're going to take the questions from somebody else and just repeat the answers. If my teacher can be lazy, so can I. So it's, it's a systemic thing that we have to bring in where we are actually looking at building a culture of academic integrity. And in fact, what, that's what we've seen universities that have managed that kind of um, atmosphere succeed through the pandemic. Universities that didn't have like academic integrity as an agenda in their board meetings, they're the ones that were struggling. Um, universities that did So they had that holistic approach already in place. They had the policies in place. They had instructors and faculty members who were aware of it. They had support systems for university students. Uh, Teachers were not focusing on marks, but rather on the efforts. These are the institutions that really succeeded um, uh, over the pandemic. So that's the kind of thing that you need to be doing. Now, she said that according to her research, cheating is surprisingly common between 70 to 80 percent. But according to Dr. Khan from the Wollongong University, Dubai, uh, the rise of artificial intelligence chatbots such as ChatGPT have just changed the way that students cheat. What is making it uh, a concern for most academics is that conversational side of it, where you can just go and put in a question and then it will give you some kind of an answer. I know there have been sensational headlines about how schools are banning it and universities are saying, oh, we need to go back to pen and paper and that is the way forward. It cannot be the way forward because that's not progress. You're going backwards. It's just a tool. So what we need to do is look at how do we incorporate this into our subjects? How do we incorporate this into our curricula? Um, Redesign and rethink assessments so that, you know, we are not depending on just something that a student produces, rather something the student is reflecting on, providing insights on. So it's, it's also about the assessment design, largely, that we need to be looking at. So yes, it's a concern. It's a concern because if a student is producing a um, piece of text from ChatGPT, it might be very difficult to distinguish between something a student has written and something a ChatGPT has written. But if I, as a lecturer, would know what kind of uh, output to expect from a student because I know what the process was, then I will immediately be able to distinguish. And instead of playing cat and mouse and being police with the students, if I can actually tell students, go ahead and use ChatGPT and then come back and reassess that work, reflect on it, review it, and then come back and give me a piece of work that you think is going to be answering my question. That's a more positive, more proactive way of looking at ChatGPT in classrooms. Such an interesting interview there with Dr. Zenith Reza Khan. She's Programme Director of Pathway Programs at the University of Wollongong here in Dubai. She has been researching cheating by university students and how ChatGPT is helping them. This person says, and I'm keeping them anonymous, even though they've given their name. Yes, I've used ChatGPT multiple times for my English essays, and I've got sevens out of eight. Interesting stuff. Anyone else here happy to admit that they're out of the 70 or 80% of people that have cheated? Do send me a message. Also, I'd love to know what you're using ChatGPT for. It's got so many manifold uses that I'm intrigued to know what people have been asking it. Uh, I know that we asked it to write... Um, I think we asked it. Did we ask it to write a, a, a rap song? Or no, we asked it to write a speech, and then we asked it to write it in the style of a rap song. It was absolutely masterful at doing both tasks. Uh, slightly daunting, slightly scary that our whole lives are going to be taken over by artificial intelligence. This is Eye on Education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yeah, you're listening to Eye on Education on the agenda. Georgia Tolly here, keeping you company till one. We are going to carry on talking about cheating. Don't you worry. Thank you very much to everyone who's got in touch. Keep your comments coming. That is
is off the news that apparently 80% of people have cheated. 70 to 80%. Stunning figure. If you are one of them, this is your chance to come clean. Now, we're going to turn our attention now to a concern that I know I've been grappling with. And that is the amount of time my children are going to be in school over the next few months. Obviously, we've got half term starting today. Meanwhile, UAE children are set to have only 10 school days in April. 10 in part because of the Easter holidays and in part because of the Eid break. Now, the spring break ends on the 7th of April and then the Eid break starts on the 20th of April. And ahead of that, with Ramadan coming up, the school day will be curtailed to ensure teachers and pupils can rest while they are fasting. OK, so do we need to know, do we need to worry that our children aren't going to be keeping up with the curriculum? You know, should we be organising, uh-oh, more homework? I definitely don't want to be doing that. Uh, so joining us now to talk through those questions is Tabitha Bader. She's the senior editor of schoolscompared.com. They're a UAE-based schools comparison website. Joins me on Microsoft Teams now. Tabitha, should I be worried? Hi, Georgia. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely uh, to have I you. Thank you. I don't think you need to be worried. Uh, it's nothing new. UAE teachers and principals and schools are used to this. Uh, they've known, you know, we've had a, a whole year now of the four and a half day working week. They've got used to working out how to spread the curriculum out. Um, there are a certain number of uh, hours that are needed for instruction for GCSEs and A-levels, for example. And they do make sure that they are covered. So in terms of your children's learning, you don't have to worry because this is nothing new. We've had Ramadan has, has been happening every year um, ever since the schools have been operating here. So I definitely wouldn't worry about their learning because that will be the priority for every school. Do children get more days off here than in other countries? Now, I ask that quite safely mm. because one of my friends, Lucy, once did the calculations and compared it to a friend's school back in the UK. And actually, mm. once you shook it down, it was equal. Is, is, yeah. is that the case? Yes, yes. On schoolscompared.com, we actually have, uh, we did a, a comparison around the world and it's pretty average, surprisingly. I, what I was surprised by, you know, you put your children into private school and you kind of think that's my childcare done for most of the year. But actually the, the minimum number of days that the UAE Ministry of Education requires for private schools is 182 days, which is just under half the year. So actually, you know, we shouldn't be expecting schools to be childcare. They are actually instruction, they are education, and they aren't for the whole year. They're actually for, for just under half the year. So we do have to be prepared that we're going to have to uh, find other arrangements, of course. And across the world, it is pretty average. I think in the UK, uh, it's 190 days. Um, in, in areas like, uh, in countries like India, it can go up much higher. It can go up to 240 days in some countries. Um, but around the world in Europe, it's a it's a similar a similar situation 190 194 maybe 200 so whereas there are some in Sweden for example it has 178 as a minimum so the UAE actually has more days than 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 Sweden so it's pretty average um and the other thing that we need to remember is that more time doesn't equal better quality learning necessarily there's lots and lots of research to show that it's not about the amount of time that they're in school and it's not about the number of days they're in school. It's about the quality of the instruction and making sure that both teachers and students have time to decompress and, and enjoy an informal learning environment is also really important. I'm very disappointed to hear that our children are in school a normal amount of time. I was hoping I was going to be able to say it's outrageous. Put them in for longer. As a working mother, I think that uh, I definitely do see school as, as something of, of childcare. And I know I probably shouldn't. Um, is there sort of some slack in the school day that parents maybe don't know about? Is that how the schools manage the Ramadan hours without uh, compromising on education? So... They they do have to cut the well they haven't announced it but usually they have to cut the school day down by uh, two hours uh, but they are aware of this from the beginning of the year so they plan this very far in advance so they do account for the fact that that there will be shortened days and also this year because there is the spring break that sort of take it mops up two weeks of the Ramadan shortened hours so it's only two weeks of fewer hours so. It's not it's not the kind of situation that it could be some years where it's the full month. Yeah. Uh, 
So they and they are aware of it from the beginning of the year. So they do they do make allowances for it. And schools have a bit of flexibility. So they they can there are some dates of holidays which are set, which they can't uh, deviate from, but they do have flexibility around some of the days. So if they need an extra day, then they will they will take that day. Really interesting stuff. Now, obviously, we're just about to go into half term now, uh, which is a week off, or at least my kids have got a week off. Uh, when you, as a mother or as, as parents, do you think that we should be using these holiday opportunities to, to catch up our kids, maybe on spelling or maths? Or do you think that they should be just taking the break? So this is a really interesting one. I'm a working mother as well. And I I'm, I'm sort of feel very passionately about this because it's re- it is it's really difficult as as a working parent what are you supposed to do with your children should you just let them get bored because there's a lot of value in that should you be putting them into a a, a cramming camp or a, a sports camp i think whatever you do as long as the child is engaged and is enjoying it it will be useful so if you're if you're giving them loads of homework and it's turning them off learning that's the worst thing you could possibly do. It's much better that they would be at a sports camp or something running around and having a fun time and learning in a different way, learning learning to socialise, learning to move their body differently or whatever it is. That would be much better than, than putting them in some kind of tuition, which is frankly shouldn't be necessary because the schools are, they are going to, to make sure that they reach all of the basics if your child's in one of the good schools that are, that are here in Dubai of which there are very many they will be making sure that your child's on track to be exactly where they should be expected to be by the end of the year um, so anything extra is just something really for the parents would be pushing it I don't think that the child needs it and certainly if it's going to turn the child off learning it's a big no-no Thank you very much. That's very reassuring, uh, considering we're about to go into a week's holiday and I've got no intention of getting my children to do any homework at all. Uh, So Tabitha Barden there, thank you so much for your time, reassuring me on both fronts that I don't need to do homework during the holidays and that the children are going to be in school enough to learn the curriculum, even though they only have 10 days in school in April. Tabitha Barden there, Senior Editor of SchoolsCompared.com. They are a UAE-based schools comparison website. This is our on education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people Right, welcome back to Ion Education on the Agenda. We will be continuing our conversation uh, on the programme about cheating over the next hour or so. Uh, we're going to have a guest uh, from Crimson Education who's going to talk about how chat GPT is being used in cheating. Astonishing to hear that figure that between 70 to 80% of pupils admit to cheating, which makes you wonder about those who maybe didn't admit to it. We're getting lots of people getting in touch with us uh, to admit to whether or not they cheated. Please do add your voice to the conversation. Now, people who listen to the agenda throughout the week will know that we've been closely following the aftermath of those earthquakes that have destroyed parts of Turkey and Syria. Rescue workers are now making a final push to find survivors, but more than 20,000 people are known to have died, while thousands more remain unknown accounted for. Now, despite the freezing cold weather and the hours that have passed since the earthquakes on Monday, people are still being pulled from the rubble. And this was the moment a child was rescued after being trapped for more than two days in a collapsed apartment block. The sound of that gives me uh, goosebumps. Even without seeing the footage, you can hear uh, the excitement, the joy of the rescuers as they finally managed to pull that child from the wreckage. And on the programme today, we are focusing on the plight of the children who were caught up in the crisis. Earlier, I spoke to Amar Amar. He's from UNICEF. He's their regional chef, chief of advocacy and communications. Uh, Obviously, UNICEF is the UN's children's fund. And I asked him of his assessment of the reality on the ground. Uh, I wanted to know how their relief effort is going. The situation is catastrophic. And this is putting it mildly, you know. 
So we have our teams in Damascus who, at the onset of the earthquake, they started working and assessing and trying to reach out to the affected places. Our country representative herself, at the onset, you know, she was in Aleppo, she went to Latakia and other places to stand firsthand on the extent of the destruction and as well the impact of the earthquake on the people and in particular on children. At the other side, we have an office in Gaza in Tep, which is covering the northwest of Syria, where we work with partner organizations as well to assess and to support those who are affected. So just to paint a picture of the situation, thousands of people killed, heart-wrenching footage of children being pulled from under the rubble. Some of them are, you know, alive, which is like really heartwarming in this kind of cold, you know, and catastrophic situations. But at the same time, we know that as time goes by and with the harsh weather conditions, it is getting a bit difficult for children who are like really stuck under the rubble. So this is one of the things and we hope that the the search and rescue efforts are really strengthened and mobilized and given all the support that they need to be able to continue work, doing their work more efficiently and more strongly, you know, to rescue lives as probably the time limit or the time frame still allows it. Are you also worried about the situation for survivors? Hundreds of thousands of people have fled their homes. First, because some of their homes were like partially damaged. The infrastructures, you know, are not good. And they were afraid as well of the aftershocks. So they went in the thousands to the streets. They took to the public park. They are sleeping under under bridges, in mosques, in schools and elsewhere. So their situation is catastrophic because they have woken up at four in the morning, noise, chaos, trembling, everything is moving, shaking. And you can imagine the panic, especially for the children going out, rushing out. Everything is, you know, cold, everything is dark, and then they have to go to an unfamiliar place. So we can only imagine the trauma that the all the people have went through, but more in particular, you know, the children as well under very harsh weather conditions. So their immediate needs are really like, you know, winterization, it is warm clothing, it is blankets, it's mattresses, you know, just to stay warm. At the same time, food, especially for kids who are under two years old, because this age group, they require specific nutrition plan. And as well for women who are pregnant as well. At the same time, this would require as well special attention. We have been distributing as well in some areas uh, high energy biscuits and this is really important for kids because it gives them a lot of, of energy, you know, it is used for such kind of situations. As well as nutrition, are you concerned about things like water supplies? This is like really important because Syria is still grappling with the cholera. It started in September last year, more than 84,000 cases and there are still many cases and the forecast that as well tens of thousands of cases will continue to be present, you know, and contracting cholera. But now the risk is much higher for cholera and other water-related diseases because the water infrastructure has been shaken, has been damaged, and there is a huge risk that this will get as well mixed with the uh, sewage water. And this will create definitely polluted water that will be consumed by people because they have no other means. So our main focus and attention now is to make sure that the damages to the water plants are attended ASAP and fixed in the in the shortest delay, while at the same time, we have already started providing, you know, clean, safe drinking water through water trucking. It's the nature of disasters such as this that often children become separated from their parents. Is that something that UNICEF is also trying to help with? Child production is another element that we are looking into, you know, during the earthquakes, panic, trauma, everything kids get separated, families could perish and kids survive, I mean, sadly, as we are seeing on, sadly and gladly, I mean, at the same time, sadly, like the family has to perish, but as well, I mean, babies and kids manage to be pulled from the rubble alive. And this as well needs special attention, you know, and to be reunited with their next of kin. So the UNICEF is working as well quite closely with partners to identify and to locate separated children and to reunite them with their families. And at the same time, to provide them with much, much needed, those kids and others, you know, with psychological support. Because I think the trauma that they have went through, they did not witness, uh, you know, like it for for, uh, many years from a natural disaster point of view. But as well, at the same time, there is another sad reality, you know, for those who are 12 years old and under, you know, they have only experienced in most of these areas and as well in the Northwest, you know, only um, uh, displacement many times over, you know, they are living in tents, you know, um, very harsh economic situations. 
and very harsh conditions, you know. So this is continuous now. This is, they have been living through for the past 12 years, and now the earthquake comes, you know, as another aggravating factor to their situation. And this is where the psychological support, I think, is really important. And the university, they are working on it because these kids, they need to feel a little bit more safe. They need some sense of normalization. So the UNICEF is rolling out as well, already assessing and will start rolling out as well programs with its partner for the psychosocial support for the kids in, in Syria. Now, I know that the infrastructure in Turkey is there to get supplies into these 12 cities that have been particularly badly hit. However, I also know that it's difficult to get aid into Syria. My understanding is that certain border crossings have now been opened and it is possible to get aid through into the northwest side of the country. Is that helping you guys? Definitely. In the northwest of the country, we are using already our existence emergency relief items that were already pre-positioned to, to alleviate the suffering of the people living there, you know, millions of people, you know. So we already have started sending trucks from our logistical hub in Copenhagen and elsewhere as well with uh, the relief items and with the hope that they will arrive in the next few days to Turkey and from there as well to the Northwest. Health item, you know, surgical items and what's called water purifying material tablets and sort of like, so really the uh, basic health emergency kits, these are like basic stuff that is needed now by the uh, affected population. Is there a sense that this could be one of the worst disasters that we've seen for it decades? Is. It, it is. is. It is what we are seeing. I mean, the area didn't see a disaster at such a scale for the past 100 years, you know, and this is, we have seen from the figures and sadly, I think this will still going up drastically. We know that there are still many areas still needs to be um, further supported in the search and rescue and the scale of of the destruction is massive so uh, we can only imagine that the number will be maybe doubling in the days to come and this is the sad reality Amar Amar there Uh, he's the regional chief of advocacy and communication for UNICEF which is of course the UN's children fund uh, keeping us updated there on the uh, on the plight of children uh, in the in that area Uh, we will be following this story closely over the next few hours obviously the ARN News Centre follows it all the time if you want to get more news on that please do check out their website arnnewscentre.ae This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Right, taking a look now at an inspiring story for those of you who are stuck in school-run traffic right now, because one of the first Emirati women ever, literally ever, has gained early admission to Stanford University and a scholarship to support her studies. Galia Alhendi is a grade 12 student from Adnock Schools, Sas Al Nikhil, and with an acceptance rate of only 3% and only 250 international students accepted to Stanford University across the globe. It really is a real achievement. And I'm delighted to say that Galia joins me now on the line on Teams. Congratulations. How are you? Hi, everyone. Um, So first off, I just want to say I'm very grateful for this opportunity and to be speaking here um, to all of you. Oh, it's lovely to have you join us on the line. Thank you so much. Tell me, what are you planning to study at university? Um, So I'm planning to study engineering physics. Um, This is a major not really found here in the UAE. So I definitely want to go to Stanford and study engineering physics, come back and uh, hopefully serve my country right. Um, It's definitely something I'm very passionate about. But I also want to uh, put aside my passion for inclusion. So throughout high school, I've been working with Special Olympics UAE to... um, build inclusivity here in the UAE through my organization Peepability or through different uh, global events like the Global Youth Leadership Summit. This upcoming one, I'll be in Berlin to hopefully present my project. So that's something I also want to go to Stanford and learn more about, especially that I'll be in Silicon Valley. Oh my goodness, it's going to be amazing. How did it feel when you found out that you'd been accepted? Definitely like a surreal experience. Um, It was like around 4 a.m. I was with my sister and my mom and we were like all crying because (laughs) it's like a really great experience also to like know that they 
have recognized my hard work and commitment throughout high school and saw how passionate I was uh, about what I am doing right now in high school. And um, it was definitely a rewarding feeling, I would say. Are you nervous about going to study in the States or does the excitement take over? So I actually got to go to Stanford this summer. So I took a few courses there and I fell in love with the place, which is uh why I ended up applying early. So it's something that I'm actually very excited to go back to and go back to Stanford in the environment in Palo Alto. Amazing that you've already managed to do some studies there. And, and I suppose that's going to break you in gently to, to living away from home in the United States. What would be your advice to pupils and, and their parents who are similarly ambitious? Because you must have worked hard throughout your school career in order to achieve this. Of course. I feel like uh, these top universities, like if I would give any advice, I'd give this, that these top universities don't want just students who study. They also want students who are really passionate about something and are working towards a goal. So, for example, in uh, my high school career, I was very passionate about inclusivity. So I really worked on having a change in the UAE. Uh, My admission officer actually pointed that out on how I've created the change in UAE. So I would say that find something that you're very passionate about, work very hard towards it, and make sure that you're doing it at a larger scale and you start early so then you can build that project or whatever it may be. It is amazing that you had time for all these fantastic extracurricular activities as well. Now, I know you mentioned that you want to come back to the UAE and, and serve your country. You know, you'll do a degree in the States, but then you'll come back and, and, and work yeah. here. Do you know what you want to be uh, when you've got your degree? Do you know what sort of profession you want to go into? You know, is it, is it space? Is it engineering? Is it uh, all, all? I mean, there'll be so many options open to you. So I definitely want to um, create further research on physics, but I also want to come back and make sure um, uh, that neurodivergent students are equally supported um, like neurotypical students. That's something that um, I'm very passionate about. And uh, the progress, uh, the progression that's happening in the UAE, I'm very inspired by. And I want to be a part of that change when I come back here so these are two very important things to me that I I would say are definitely part of my future, hopefully. Amazing stuff. I have to say, uh, absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Real privilege. And I'm so impressed by your passion and enthusiasm and by the fact that you've got a scholarship and you're going to Stanford, uh, which is hugely exciting. So Galia Alhendi, a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. And I wish you all the success in the future. Lovely, inspiring story there here on Eye on Education on the Agenda. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Now we're going to take a look at the increasing representation of women in science. That's ahead of the United Nations International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which takes place this Saturday. Now, the UN has emphasised the point that science and gender equality are both vital for the achievement of the internationally agreed development goals. And over the past 15 years, the global communities put a lot of effort into inspiring and engaging women and girls in science. We've seen it right here in the UAE, but women and girls globally continue to be excluded from participating fully in science. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, the numbers still aren't equal. So why is that and what can be done to help change it? Now, those are two questions that I asked Rachel Parkinson. She's a science teacher at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. I spoke to her a little bit earlier. And first up, I wanted to know whether she's noticed a difference between boys and girls when it comes to their interest in science. I don't don't think I've ever noticed that there's a particular difference between boys and girls and how much they enjoy science. Um, I think definitely, you know, I've always taught in mixed schools. um, And I think here at RGS, I teach like year five and into year seven. And I think there's just as much enjoyment. I think you'll find maybe certain topics students might prefer differently. But I think it's I've never noticed a significant difference between boys and girls in how they like science. I think even back to when I studied science, it was you know 
I think then maybe it was a bit more biased that boys did physics and girls did biology. And I think my parents um, went to school where they, you know, my mum only was allowed to study biology because that was the only science they offered. She went to an all girls school and my dad studied physics and he was at an all boys school. I think it doesn't happen anymore. The UK national curriculum means that, you know, they have to study science all the way up to 16 and they have to study all three. There isn't the option to drop one of them until they get to A-level. So I think that's, you know, really nice um, and keeps the interest in there. So, yeah. I had to do all three until A-level as well. And I gave them up at 16. And I mean, I've said this on the radio in the past, but I'm definitely part of the stereotype. I'm definitely part of the cliche. I hated physics. I didn't like chemistry. Biology was okay. But to be honest, I found all three pretty difficult to the extent that I can still remember my Wednesday afternoon because timetabled was triple, triple physics. And the fact that I can still remember that 25 years later shows how traumatizing that that was for me. I mean, do you think it was just that I wasn't being taught in a way that suited me? Or do you think some people just don't necessarily harness, they don't have the brains to harness science? We're all completely different. My husband's a history teacher. Science is not his thing either. Whereas I can't remember facts and dates, you know, like it's just we're all very, very different. And I do think, I mean, there's a massive shortage of teachers in those subjects. And I think even back when we were in school, it was the same. Um, So getting the right teacher is really important. I was lucky I had, you know, really great teachers. And my physics teacher was probably my favourite teacher. He still teaches at my local school now. Um, and, And that's an amazing kind of thing that we had that but science isn't for everybody but it and it is something that you have to learn but I think we have to look at the skills that we can get from science it's not about the content that we cover and the and actually the topics that we cover it's about the skills like questioning things you know like especially now we live in a world where we want to question the media we want to question everything that we hear and science is all about asking questions and finding out what's happening to your life and I think we often have the lucky thing in science that we can make it link it to a something that's relevant to you you know um, my chemistry teacher famously told me that you know there's not a single thing that you can mention that he can't link back to science and we used to challenge him all the time and he can always link those things back even if it's things to do with emotions and he still will link it back to you know the physical things that happen in your body that make those emotions you feel those emotions so I think it's about making it relevant and I think you know I meet lots of parents who say to me oh science wasn't my thing at school as well it's like it doesn't have to be your thing but I think if people become more interested in it when it's relevant to them and I think that's the biggest challenge of a science teacher is to make everything that we're covering really really relevant um but yeah there are some you know I think I look back to how I was taught literally open the textbook double page spreads occasionally do a practical to how we teach nowadays and how I've taught I've been teaching since like 2005 um just you know the imagination that's in lessons now the creativity like we're lucky to have amazing facilities here so we get like you know the students are doing practical all the time and all those things I think it's about making it engaging but for me my dreaded subject was you know an afternoon of history so everyone's um, slightly different But I suppose what we shouldn't do, therefore, is presume that the reason why I didn't like triple physics was because I was a girl. I am a girl. It was actually just because maybe my brain wasn't, you know, I was obviously more into English and and languages and things. But are there any differences between the ways you teach girls and boys? Is there a way to describe something that a girl might enjoy more than a boy? Or do you not really think about gender in your classes at all? I don't personally um, think about teaching them differently. I think every child learns in a different way. So I think as a teacher, you're constantly trying to look at different ways to make your lessons creative. And actually, in science, there's a little bit of English. There's a lot of literacy. I mean, scientific vocabulary is huge. And we like put a real spin on that. And especially for students who English isn't their you know native language, like the amount of vocabulary they learn into science. Actually, I can sometimes find speakers 
really struggle with biology, whether they're male or female, it's, it's because of the language to access it. Whereas they might strive in physics because it's, you know, numerical notation, which is common to all languages. So um, I, I spend more time thinking about students who have other challenges rather than whether they're male or female. And I think I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the statistics, but I pretty much believe like there's quite a lot of evidence that teaching girls and boys separately can have a really positive experience for girls, but not necessarily for boys. So um, we've tried in previous schools that I've worked in back in the UK, we had, you know, challenging issues with behaviour or things like that, where we looked at teaching boys and girls separately. We looked at who teaches them. You know, I think a big thing for girls possibly could be is about the role models that they have and that they can see and that they, they see girls in science or females in science. Um, you know, I've been really lucky in my career to work with some really incredible female physics teachers and I've seen whole A-level groups that are all girls and whether that's the teacher, whether it's the um, subject content, whether it's how that teacher teaches those lessons, how we promote it at that school. I don't know if there's a particular way that we would teach boys and girls differently. I think it's more about how you make students love your subject, not necessarily whether they're male or female. Interesting stuff there from Rachel Parkinson. She's a science teacher at Royal Grammar School at Guildford, Dubai. Up next, we continue that conversation about the role models that women and girls see in science. Uh, Rachel will be sticking with us. We'll be talking to her again a little bit more about those role models and, and why they don't jump to mind immediately. We'll also continue our conversation about cheating. The messages keep on coming in. People are starting to admit that they did cheat at school. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yeah, we're discussing the increasing representation of women in science today. The numbers are going up uh, and that is uh, ahead of the United Nations International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which takes place on Saturday. Like I say, they're going up, but ultimately the numbers still aren't equal. Uh, So we wanted to know why that is and what can be done to help change it. Those were two questions that I asked Rachel Parkinson. Now, she's a science teacher at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Uh, We're halfway through our conversation with her because I also wanted to know whether she thinks there are more girls who are taking sciences now right through their school career compared to when she was studying. You know, I studied biology and chemistry and I studied biochemistry at university and I would say that my biology class was heavily female. Um, I think there was four boys and 12 girls and um, uh, chemistry was five girls and one boy and I didn't do physics. I think there was three students who did physics. They were all boys. Um, So yeah I mean they were quite small numbers it was quite a small school science wasn't like a big subject particularly at those schools here um my biggest class I've had a class of 30 students doing chemistry and I'd say could be 50-50 and it is really interesting because here you've got a lot of students who are interested in engineering who might be studying chemistry you have a lot of students who might be interested in medicine and actually it's quite hard to teach those two different groups because you will have mathematical chemists and you'll have chemistry students who don't study maths and that can be a challenge um, in terms of their combinations you know biology English and psychology is a common uh, grouping together or biology chemistry and English um, and then those students maybe struggle with the mathematics so it's it's, it's a real challenge and I think there's this myth that biology doesn't have any maths in it when actually there's huge amounts of statistics in maths so in, in biology rather um, so that mathematical skill is really important and I've often separated the students into like whether they do maths or not rather than boys and girls it's more about and where they want to take it I mean I, I went to a a science university I went to Imperial College in London which is known for science technology and I was there well back in 1998 was the first year that they opened the medical school and prior to me going there it was like 80% male 20% female because they only study science um, now it's about 60 40 like on my biochemistry degree I would say we were probably about 50 50 biology slightly more but I had a friend who was a civil engineer who was like there were two girls and 200 students so you know I think those statistics are changing and I think um, I think it was 2019 where for the first time more girls to science at a level than boys but that is still subject linked is 70% probably do biology 
still only about 30% do physics. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think definitely more girls do it. And I think um, internationally, girls do better at science. Like if you look at some of the statistics, girls perform better in science. So maybe they're taking a subject because they're actually performing better at GCSE an A-level so they are getting onto those courses because sometimes their entrance requirements are quite high so whether that's having a change um, and causing that change in numbers studying those subjects. So here in the UAE many more girls are taking science subjects but there still seems to be a gap in between the number of women who are then going into STEM careers. Now we talked about this before on Ion Education and I just wonder if you have a theory for why that might be. I genuinely don't know. I mean, obviously, I studied science and a lot of my friends are female and are in science careers um, um, or have moved into fields that are still linked to science, but not necessarily purely science. I think it's about 30 percent in science. But uh, so I think women are definitely underrepresented in, in science fields. And I really don't know why. I A big thing for me is I wonder about, you know, the profile of amazing female scientists and obviously the international women day in science and things is is one way of like promoting that but we don't see those female scientists on tv we don't hear about them in the press and in the media in the same way that we might hear about male um scientists and i think even if you go down to primary school and you ask a child to draw a scientist they draw a man in a white coat with crazy hair wearing glasses it's that still that image is there so i think we have to like massively promote those incredible women who are in science you know i asked my husband yesterday can you give me name name a female scientist and he said marie curie which i think most people would come up with an incredible film made about her recently but there's nobody mentions you know rosalind franklin who did all the x-ray crystallography that led to dna Sarah Gilbert, Professor Sarah Gilbert, who worked on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, Greta Thunberg, you know, climate change is still linked to science. Those women that we see on TV, their names aren't dripping off our tongue like Elon Musk or, you know, people like that and inventors and things that are still scientists. You know, I, I think there's definitely a big room for promoting those females in science so that girls go, actually, I could do that. Lovely uh, comment there from Rachel Parkinson, a science teacher at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, talking through the differences between girls and boys when it comes to science. In her view, there aren't really any differences. It all comes down to the skill of the teacher. Interesting stuff. And that's all from the Ion Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.